We are in Acts 23. I am going to sit this morning. Got an inner ear thing, and it's not my first choice, but it's better than toppling over and falling off the platform. And Acts 23, as we continue our footsteps of Paul's study, wave it, bud, if you need a Bible, so that you can follow along. I spent the first part of the week with a pastor friend who invited me to go to Las Vegas, of all places, and help him on a project. But since we weren't doing any of the things that Vegas offers, we had a lot of time to talk and a good opportunity to catch up on what the Lord is doing in our respective fellowships. And I walked away from the week and from my time with my friend with tremendous gratitude for what the Lord is doing here. And we're obviously not the only family of Christ that God is blessing, but it, it's special nonetheless, isn't it? The depth of relationships and the reality of the community that God is authoring and, and the lack of drama. It's, it's one of those things I, for, I forget to, God, to thank God for until I'm, I'm reminded that that's not everywhere. I walked away grateful. At the same time, I can't help but recognize that it's a difficult time for many people in our community, people who are part of our family. Like I said, we weren't doing the things that Vegas does, so we, we, we spent a decent amount of time praying. And our prayer list here at Calvary is a long one. I mean, just looking around the room, there are people fighting cancer and other illnesses. There are people battling addiction, dealing with chronic pain. There are Couples trying to build or rebuild. There are some struggling to provide for their families, some exhausted as they care for uh, sick members of their families. There are families agonizing over, over prodigals who have walked away. All kinds of people struggling all of, under all kinds of strain of all kinds of responsibility. It's, it's a lot. It's just a lot. It's a lot of people dealing with a lot of hard and a lot of hurt, and a lot of heartache. And everyone I just described, and those that I didn't describe, those whose strain and pain doesn't fit into a nice, neat category, will understandably ask from time to time, we all ask from time to time, where is God in all of this? We know better, I think, than to ask, why do bad things happen to good people? We know better than that because we understand there's only been one good person ever. His name was Jesus and bad things hap bad happened to him because he volunteered to take our place, to take our punishment, to bear our sin and God's wrath for our sin so our sin could be forgiven. Jesus was a perfect sacrifice. And all of the sin of the world was placed upon him because he asked for it to. But what about now that our sin is forgiven, yours and mine? Okay, Patrick, I don't get to ask why do bad things happen to good people, but why do bad things happen to God's people? Now that I'm following God, now that I'm worshiping God, now that I'm serving God, now that I spend a lot of my time telling people about God, why do things keep happening? It almost seems like more bad things are happening. Paul had to be wondering that as we catch up with him in Acts 23 this morning. 
Paul probably wondered that a lot of times during his ministry. 25 years of being robbed, jailed, run out of town, beaten, stoned. I'm guessing that Paul wondered that from time to time. And I'm guessing that he was wondering it again about now, about the time that we're reading about in Acts 23. After a well-intended gesture of unity at the temple almost gets him killed not once but twice at the hands of an angry mob. We left off last week. Paul had been rescued again by Roman soldiers, ironically. But as we pick up this morning in Acts 23, verse 12, Paul's going to almost immediately face another death threat. It was only a few months ago, in, in Paul's time, and in our time, but only a few months ago, Paul had written to the church in Rome, nothing can separate us from the love of God. This recent chain of events had to have him asking, or can it? Has it? Is that why all this is happening? And maybe some of us are wondering the same thing this morning. Maybe some of you empathize with Paul as we open the word this morning and see a guy who wants nothing more than to serve the Lord, and yet at every turn, it seems that he faces trial and affliction. Lord, I pray that you would speak to every hurting heart in this room, every hurting soul in the sound of my voice, and encourage us from your word this morning, now, as we listen, as we read. As we seek you. Acts 23, verse 12. And when it was day, the day after Jesus appears to Paul in his cell, the day after this mob had twice demanded Paul's head, some of the Jews banded together and bound themselves under an oath, saying they would neither eat nor drink till they had killed Paul. Well, that's a noble goal. Jew here, by the way, has the same connotation as it does in the Gospels, especially John's Gospel. It doesn't refer to the Jewish people in total, but rather to the leaders of the Jewish people in Jerusalem. Now, there were more than 40, verse 13, there were more than 40 who had formed this conspiracy because hatred of Paul was that widespread and because they figured they'd need that many to carry out their plan. What was their plan? Verse 14, they came to the chief priests and elders and said, here's our plan. We've bound ourselves under a great oath that we will eat nothing until we've killed Paul. That's how serious we are about it. And here's how we're going to do it. Now you, therefore, together with the council, the Sanhedrin, the ruling people of, the, of Jerusalem, suggest to the commander, the Roman commander, that he, Paul, be brought down to you tomorrow as though you were ready to make further inquiry concerning him but we're ready to kill him before he comes near. So just to, to anchor this in a sense of place, the hearing or the gathering or whatever it was last week happened over in this corner of uh, the, 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 the temple. Here's the, the courtyard. And then this is the Antonia Fortress built adjacent to it. So what they're proposing is, hey, ask the Roman commander to have Paul brought all the way over here to where the Sanhedrin meets. And, and we'll do a hearing and a formal proceeding, except somewhere between here and there, we're going to jump Paul and drag him off and kill him. Because probably there would be a lot of Roman troops here, 
But once they get into the courtyard, and even fewer as, as they approach the Sanhedrin chamber, there would be few, if any, Roman troops allowed and an adequate place for a lynch mob to jump up and, and, and take Paul and, and drag him away and kill him. Now, I was teaching Acts years ago, and somebody asked, what happened to the 40 guys? They took a vow not to eat until Paul was dead, but Paul doesn't end up dead. He lives for another eight or nine years. Did they just starve to death? No, it turns out there's actually a provision in the Talmud. If keeping a vow would cost you your life, you're allowed to go to the elders and, and have them absolve you of the vow, which makes you wonder then why vow a vow. But anyway, verse 16, When Paul's sister's son heard of their ambush, he went and entered the barracks and told Paul, Wait, 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 wait. Paul's sister's son? Paul is a sister? Paul is a nephew? How have I missed this? You didn't miss it. This is the only time it's mentioned. And that's literally all we know. Were they Christians? Did they live in Jerusalem? Did they come to Jerusalem because they heard Paul was going to be in Jerusalem? Was his nephew studying with Gamaliel the way that Paul studied under Gamaliel? Fun to speculate. We don't know. Verse 17, Paul called one of the centurions to him and said, take this young man to the commander for he has something to tell him. Paul's still in custody, but he's got a little bit of, of liberty. He's been treated well ever since they found out he's a Roman citizen. So he can have visitors, obviously, and he's able to speak with high-ranking officers. The centurion was in charge of 100 men. And, and uh, clearly the centurion listened to him. So he took him, the centurion brought Paul's nephew and brought him to the commander and said, Paul the prisoner called me to him and asked me to bring this young man to you. Apparently he's got something to say to you. And the commander takes Paul's request seriously, too. He's probably still shaking over how close he came to having Paul scourged, which would have had all kinds of consequences for him. He's not ready to release Paul, clearly, but he's willing, apparently, to do anything short of that to get on Paul's good side. So the commander indulges this request. The commander, verse 19, took him, took Paul's nephew by the hand, went aside and asked privately, what is it that you have to tell me? This is probably a boy who needs some reassurance that he's not in trouble and that it's really okay to have this conversation. But, he, but he, he, he rises to the occasion. He said, the Jews, the leaders, have agreed to ask that you bring Paul down to the council tomorrow as though they were going to inquire more fully about him. So this isn't just a rogue faction. The Sanhedrin clearly are in on it. But do not yield to them, for more than 40 of them lie in wait for him. Men have bound themselves by an oath that they'll neither eat nor drink till they've killed him. And now they're ready, waiting for the promise for you to bring Paul so they can ambush him. So the commander let the young man depart and commanded him, because he's a commander, let no one know what you, that you've revealed these things to me. He doesn't want those plotting the ambush to get tipped off that he knows, or they might change the plan. Verse 23, he called for two centurions, saying, Prepare 200 soldiers, 70 horsemen, and 20 spearmen to go to Caesarea at the third hour of the night. We're going to leave at 9 p.m. And provide mounts to set Paul on and bring him safely to Felix the governor. Get a donkey, get a horse, get something for Paul to ride. This is 470 troops which seems excessive on the one hand, but we can understand the commander not wanting to take any chances. If Paul's nephew knows about 40, there might be a multiple of that. 
He wants to make sure that he has enough men to repel any attack, or ideally, enough of a show of force to discourage an attack in the first place so that Paul will be safe until he's outside his jurisdiction and somebody else's problem. He, verse 25, the commander, <coughs> wrote a letter then in the following manner, something along these lines. Luke either didn't see the letter, didn't remember exactly what was in the letter, but a letter like this was required of any commander, any Roman officer who was delegating up, who was making a prisoner his superior officer's problem, in this case the governor's problem. So letters were probably all similarly along these lines. Verse 26, Claudius Lysias, the name of the person writing, the name of the Roman commander. Lysias is a Greek name. Claudius was probably a Roman name that he added when he purchased his Roman citizenship. We read about that in the end of chapter 22. Claudius Lysias to the most excellent governor, Felix. Formal address. Greetings. This man, Paul, was seized by the Jews and was about to be killed by them. Coming with the troops, I rescued him, because I'm really quite something, having learned that he was a Roman. And when I wanted to know the reason they accused him, I brought him before their council. All things neat and in order. I found out that he was accused concerning questions of their law, but had nothing charged against him deserving of death or chains, but they didn't see it that way. And when it was told me that the Jews lay in wait for the man, I sent him immediately to you, because I don't want the headache, and also commanded his accusers to state before you the charges against him. Farewell. I'm washing my hands of this. And, and he, you know, he's, he's, he, understandably, he's putting himself in the best possible light. He, he's making himself out to be the hero who rescued Paul, the Roman citizen. In fact, he didn't know that Paul was a Roman citizen until after the fact, until he had him bound and almost scourged. But don't let the facts get in the way of a good story. We can understand what Lysias is going for here. Lysias wanted Paul to be somebody else's problem. So he told the story in a way that would give Felix incentive to make Paul his problem, and Lysias could get back to business as usual. Then the soldiers, verse 21, as they were commanded, took Paul and brought him by night to Antipatris. It's Aphek in the Old Testament. 30, 40 miles, depending on the route from Jerusalem, another 25, 30 miles to Caesarea. You see it here on the map. What, what isn't as clear as as you come to Antipatris, you're coming out of the mountains and out onto the coastal plain. This is also roughly, in, in this day, the boundary between Judea and Samaria. So for all of those reasons, verse 32, the next day they left the horsemen to go on with him and returned to the barracks. They did a forced march overnight to get Paul out of town and out of reach of the assassins. But once they reached Antipatris, out of the mountains, in broad daylight, in largely Gentile territory, the risk was much reduced, the chances of ambush were diminished, and so they sent a lot of the troops back home. When the rest of them, verse 33, when they came to Caesarea and delivered the letter to the governor, they also presented Paul to him. Hey, we brought you something, and this tells you about it. And when the governor had read it, he asked what province he was from. Because he wants to know if he actually has jurisdiction. He was taken into custody in Judea, but if Paul wasn't from Judea, then that might be a problem. 
And when he, Felix, the governor, understood that he was from Cilicia, he said to Paul, well, then this is okay. I will hear you when your accusers also have come. Which sounds confusing because Cilicia wasn't Judea. There were two different provinces. But both of those provinces were under the administration of the province of Syria. So it would be like, okay, you're not from Wichita, you're from Topeka, but those are both Kansas, and that's fine. I've got the authority to, to hear your case. Once, you know, the Sanhedrin have caught up to actually bring charges. And he commanded them to be kept in the meantime in Herod's Praetorium, a palace, one of many palaces that Herod the Great had built throughout the land. This one um, on, on, on the seaside that was the governor's traditional residence at this time. There you see an artist's rendering of, of what it looked like, and then we've got a slide of the ruins that have been excavated um, the way it appears today. It's really quite beautiful there. So, so Paul's being kept in relative comfort. It's not the Ritz, but it's way better than some prisons that Paul's been in. And make no mistake, it was a prison. There may or may not have been bars on the windows, but Paul couldn't leave. He could, he could have freedom of movement within the palace, it seems. Verse 24 seems to imply that. He was allowed to have friends visit, but he's still in custody there for more than two years. He was, go back to verse 18, the first time we see this title, Paul the Prisoner. If you want to do an outline of the life of Paul, you can, you can actually do an alliteration thing. Paul the persecutor, Paul the church planter and pastor, and then in his later years, Paul the prisoner, first here in Caesarea and later in Rome. Why? The charges were bogus. Lysias just said so, verse 29. None of the charges warranted death or chains. Charges were bogus. Paul's being denied due process. Part of them had to be asking, why is God allowing this? Where's God in this? Why, after 25 years of serving God faithfully, am I being dealt hand after hand after hand of bad cards? God's almighty. He's omnipotent. Why isn't he stopping this? Why do bad things happen to good people? We, we get that's the wrong question. But why do bad things happen to God's people? Why do they happen and why do they keep happening even to someone who's doing his best to serve God faithfully? It's, it's not a dopey question. It's an important question, actually. And it deserves a thoughtful answer so that we know how to encourage each other when we hit a rough patch when we go through a hard season, so we know what to remind ourselves of when we're up against it. Great, Patrick. So what's the answer? The answer is there's no one answer. There's no one single answer, because God is big, right? And he's never doing just one thing. Why does he let bad things happen to the people while he's doing all of the things that he's doing? Scripture gives us several answers. None of them stands neatly alone. In fact, they overlap quite a bit. But as we read his word, he gives us several explanations. The first, and, and perhaps the most straightforward, is reverberation. Reverberation of what? Of the curse. A lot of bad things that happen in this life, bad things that happen to you and me, are just a function of the universe being broken. 
We talked about this when we were in Romans, Romans 8, 21 and 22. Creation is groaning under bondage to corruption, groaning under the, the weight of its sin. So earthquakes in Morocco, floods in Libya, fires in Hawaii. Oh, this is God's judgment. Not necessarily. In fact, not probably. Much more likely, it's life in a fallen world. Which is not always a very satisfying explanation, but it is a reminder of how devastating sin is. How far-reaching the effects of sin can be. And these disasters can be a catalyst for those affected to consider what do they think about life and death and life after death and where they want to spend eternity. A friend of mine, high school friend of mine, was playing professional soccer in Africa when an epidemic broke out and he and other members of the team uh, and everyone else in the community were, were affected, were afflicted. He almost died. And, and it took that natural disaster to bring him to Christ. He was way, way, way living for himself when I knew him back in the day. But God used the disaster to break him and ultimately to rescue him. Sometimes trials in this life are just reverberations of the curse. Sin through a big rock in a lake and the, the waves continue to ripple out. Ripple out from the Garden of Eden into our world, into our lives. That's one possibility. But sometimes it's more personal than that, isn't it? Sometimes it's not just general, one-size-fits-all reverberation. Sometimes it's very direct, very personal repercussions of our sin. Or, let's be honest, our stupidity. The law of sowing and reaping, Paul tells us in Galatians, has not been repealed. Galatians 6, 8, he who sows to his flesh will of the flesh reap corruption, but he who sows to the Spirit will of the Spirit reap everlasting life. That's a New King James way of saying when bad things come our way, sometimes it's because we have bad things coming. And we don't need the Bible to tell us that, right? We've seen that play out in our life way too many times. You ignore the check engine light often enough, long enough, eventually the car breaks down. Ignore the warning lights that God puts in our path long enough, because he always provides a way of escape. But ignore the warning lights that God puts in our path long enough, eventually life goes sideways. Caught sowing and reaping, call it cause and effect. In our world, actions have consequences. Now, that doesn't seem to apply to Paul's situation, because the night before all of this went down, Jesus showed up in Paul's room to encourage him. And, and even before he got there, even before he made it to Jerusalem, the Holy Spirit was telling him, Jerusalem will not be fun. It will not be easy. It will be part of God's plan. All, all which to say, what's happening, chapter 21, 22, 23, doesn't seem like it's the consequence of any bad decision on Paul's part. But when it's our turn, it might be the result of a bad decision or a whole string of bad decisions on our part. When it's our turn on the, on the hot seat, it's absolutely worth checking with the Lord. It's absolutely worth fasting and praying and asking, God, is there a lesson here for me? Is there something for me to learn? Is what's happening happening for my correction? Because sometimes it is. 
Sometimes God in his love brings pain in our life because he doesn't want to see us continue down the road we're traveling. C.S. Lewis says God whispers to us, but when the whisper doesn't work, he uses a megaphone, and that megaphone is pain. And we see that all through Scripture, don't we? Places like Psalm 119. When, before I was afflicted, I went astray. But now, having been afflicted, and having learned from that, I keep your word. It is good for me that I have been afflicted. Why? That I might learn your statutes. I came to, my life is a testimony of this. I came to Christ finally, after more than a year on the fence, and by the way, Satan owns the fence. (laughs) I came to Christ because someone was trying to kill me. I I began a real relationship with Jesus. I I, I let Jesus start being my Lord and not just my Savior when my ex-wife left me. Anne and I conceived, after almost two years of trying, when we finally committed ourselves to ministry the way that God was calling us. And and every time, every time in those examples, and a lot more I could give you because I've needed a lot of correction in my life, every time God was faithful to answer when I got down on my knees and said, God, what are you showing me here? Sometimes, though, be careful. Sometimes there isn't correction waiting in the trial. We have to be careful how we pray. If we only pray, God, what am I doing wrong? We might hear nothing because the answer is nothing. That's what God showed Paul, right? Be of good cheer, he said, chapter 23, verse 11. Things aren't rough because you've done anything wrong. Things are rough even though you've done everything right. How does that make sense? Well, because some trials aren't about correction, they're about direction. Paul's captivity, we just saw, brings him to Felix. As we keep reading next week, Felix is going to hand him to Festus. Festus will bring him before Agrippa. Agrippa is going to send him to Caesar, which was God's intention all along. We saw that all the way back in Acts 9, right? But God used these, these various trials to set Paul in the right direction. It's not the first time this has happened. All the way back in Acts 9, Paul was forced to flee under the cover of darkness. Why? Because people were trying to kill him. Why? God wanted him out of Damascus and out into the mission field. Acts 16, Paul's second missionary journey, Holy Spirit didn't permit Paul and his team to go south to Asia or north to Bithynia. God pushed him west to Macedonia. And we're not sure how the Holy Spirit did or didn't allow those things, but I'm guessing it was frustrating, discouraging, perhaps painful, whatever it was, God used it to provide direction to bring the gospel to a place the gospel hadn't gone yet. Three times Anne and I tried to leave New Jersey and go to Minnesota, twice to, plan a, uh, twice to take over a church, once to plant a church. Three times we tried to leave New Jersey for Minnesota. Three times the Lord said no. And if I'm honest, three times we moaned and groaned about it. Because it felt like God was being mean. Well, he's abs- what he was a- actually doing was protecting us so that we would stay available so that he could direct us for the ministry that he'd prepared for us, the ministry here, the best thing that either of us have ever done. But it took a little bit of pain 
to get us here. Those aren't the only possibilities, though. Reverberation, repercussion, correction, direction. Some of the storms that God allows in our lives are less about any of those things, and they're more about preparation. Paul says so, 2 Corinthians chapter 1, toward the beginning. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our tribulation. Well, if you're the God of all comfort, then why do you allow the tribulation? That we may be able to comfort those who are in any trouble with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. What did Paul just say? We go through things sometimes to help other people when they go through things. Paul allows, I'm sorry, God allows tribulation to equip us, to strengthen us, to build us up, to comfort and encourage and counsel other people going through tribulation. And if you've been part of Calvary even a little while, you've seen that play out. You, you, you know James and Becky, for example, and you know their testimony, and they know that you've, you know they've been through some things. Long ago things, not so long ago things, they've been through stuff. Hard stuff, painful stuff. Who was here for James's message on Wednesday? Okay. Ask yourself, can James teach that message if he hasn't lived a great deal of what he's talking about? Think about anybody who's ministered to you, anybody who's, who's life has, has spoken into yours, would they have been able to love you and serve you the way that they did if they hadn't gone through the things that they had? That's not to say that God engineers the bad stuff in our lives so that he can redeem it later. He's, he's not conspiring like the Jews in chapter 23 to, to, to engineer bad things. He's not an end justifies the means kind of a God. He doesn't cause evil. He abhors it. God hates wickedness. And one day he's going to put an end to it. One day he's going to judge. He's going to pour wrath upon those who practice evil and wickedness and injustice. He doesn't cause evil. He doesn't enjoy seeing his children suffer. But as long as there is evil in the world, God is determined to redeem it. God has vowed to use it, and one way he uses it is to allow it to prepare us to minister to others affected by it. Others being slammed by the evil in the world or brought low by the brokenness of the world. God sometimes uses the pain of the world to prepare us to minister to others. He also, will keep going, can use pain to prepare us to minister to him. He uses trials for sanctification. That's something else we came across in Romans. We glory in tribulation, Paul says, Romans 5.3. Why? Knowing that tribulation produces perseverance, and perseverance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope doesn't disappoint. Why are we here? I'm asking the big why. What's the purpose of creation? To glorify God. That's Westminster Catechism. That's also Isaiah 43, 7. Everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, I have formed him. Yes, I have made him. We're made and then remade for God's glory. We're born and then born again. We're created and then rescued to glorify God. 
And one of the most important ways we do that is by letting God sanctify us. By letting God make us more and more and more like him. Letting him shave away the carnality, scrape down the flesh, dig out the, the humanity. And so that what's left is spirit-breathed divinity. Trials do that, Paul just said. Trials are God's tool to accomplish that. And we kind of hate that, don't we? I mean, we can see, yeah, I, I get that every time I go through a trial and I see God carry me through a trial, I'm more likely to trust him in the next trial. But I don't always like that very much. But isn't it true that if I reach out for God and I surrender to God and I yield to God in the trial, then, then, then what gets pushed out of me, what gets pressed out and flows out of me is love and joy and peace and patience and goodness and kindness and gentleness and self-control, the fruit of the Spirit. But if all I can see is the trial and all I can feel is resentment that I'm going through the trial, what, what comes out? It's bitterness. As a young pastor, I grabbed hold of the idea early on. Every believer needs a Paul, a mentor, someone to disciple them. And every believer should have a Timothy, because if you've walked with the Lord any time at all, you're further down the road than somebody else's. Have a Paul, have a Timothy. I love that idea. What I didn't realize until much later is that the Christian walk introduces us to more characters than just that. The Christian walk introduces us to Judas. Or the Christian walk introduces us to Peter. To follow Christ is, is to meet people who will betray you, people who will deny ever knowing you, ever caring about you. And it's in those times that we learn Jesus. C.S. Lewis says, everyone's a fan of forgiveness until we have someone to forgive. Trials refine us in the image of Christ. They give us an opportunity to understand Christ and to choose Christ-likeness. And wouldn't it be great if there were another way? Except, you know whose preparation for ministry included that? whose education, prescribed by God the Father himself, revolved around trials? Jesus. Jesus who, the author of Hebrews tells us, in the days of his flesh, when he'd offer up prayers and supplications with vehement cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death and was heard because of his godly fear, though he was a son, yet he learned obedience by the things which he suffered. And having been perfected through the things he learned, through the things he went through, he became the author of eternal salvation to all who obey him. Block out an afternoon and just think about that. Jesus learned obedience. On the one hand, intellectually, he already knew everything there was to know about it, but experientially, through experience, 
he learned obedience. God the Father, verse 8, allowed pain to prepare God the Son for the pain yet to come. The wilderness prepared Jesus for the garden. The garden prepared Jesus for the cross. And so if that's true, if pain was the means by which God prepared Jesus to glorify the Father, I probably don't get to skip it. And that makes sense. Because pain, trials, suffering, tribulation, pick your word, it offers us a choice. Because every time, whatever it is, it offers us an opportunity to be set apart. It's an opportunity for consecration. It's an opportunity for one of two things, to be used of God or to be bitter at God. And by the time Paul got to this point, by the time he reaches Acts 23, he'd long since decided his purpose in life was to glorify God. He had written more than once that he was looking past the pain of this world at the rewards that were waiting for him in the next world. 2 Corinthians 4, we don't lose heart. Our outward man is perishing, the inward is being renewed day by day. Our light affliction is for a moment, but it's working for a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. So we don't look at the things that are seen. We look at the things that aren't seen. Because what's seen is temporary. What's not seen is eternal. I'm living for the eternal, Paul says. But isn't it interesting? Years after he wrote that, Acts 23.11, Jesus still appears to remind Paul of what Paul had decided. Acts 23.11, Jesus reminds Paul of that very thing. Be of good cheer, Paul. Don't lose heart. Things are going according to plan. There's more happening than meets the eye. And I'm still God who redeems. Because consecration, being set apart for God, it's not a one-and-done proposition. I actually, I, don't, I actually don't know a lot of the Christian life that is. Salvation, Yeah. Walking with Christ begins with a now and forever decision, but after that come thousands and thousands more, right? Thousands upon thousands of daily choices to let God use my life, pain included, for his glory. And when we do, our lives testify to who he is. When we choose God despite the pain, when we, when we choose God in the pain, our lives become interactive demonstrations of God's grace and mercy. Pictures, but more than pictures, of who God is. Pictures of what Paul talked about, 2 Corinthians 12. God said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, most gladly, I would rather boast in my affirmities then the power of Christ may rest upon me. Therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities, in reproaches, in needs, persecutions, distresses. Why? For Christ's sake. For when I'm weak, then I'm strong. There was a song, it was a K-Love-y, Bebop-y Christian song a while ago, and I, I, I looked for it, I can't find it, but it was something along the lines of, set us on fire with your love so the world can watch us burn. Which is, which is good, which is fine. But are we willing to sing, put us in the fire so the world can watch us not burn? Put me in the furnace 
so the world can watch me trust you. So the world can watch me respond to the pain, to the hardship, declaring who you are. So that my gentleness and meekness and Christ-likeness, even in the midst of suffering, can reveal the God who came for me and who came to live within me. I think of Robbie last week, two weeks ago. I haven't been able to stop thinking about it, obviously. It's been a while since he and Diane have been with us. Worship has never been sweeter. Especially the songs that he chose take on special meaning when you remember that he has inoperable cancer. And that after a round of chemotherapy, the tumors are bigger, not smaller. And yet, what was he singing? You turn graves into gardens. You're God who redeems. Your glory is so beautiful. I'm the branch and you're the vine. You're an artist and a potter. I'm the canvas and the clay. For your glory, you can use me, Lord. For your glory, you can use me, Lord. In times of sickness, for your glory, you can use me. In times of sadness, for your glory, you can use me. In times of loss, in times of suffering, God, if it's for your glory, let's have at it. Because it's actually in times like that, God can use us more. It's times like that that we have the most, the greatest opportunity to be a reflection of God's goodness. Jesus says so in John 9. As Jesus passed by, he saw a man who was blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, neither this man nor his parents sinned, but that the works of God should be revealed in him. Whose fault is this, the disciples wanted to know. Who can we blame for his blindness? Was it him? I bet it was him. But if it wasn't him, it was definitely his parents. No, you're asking the wrong question, said Jesus. What you should be asking is, how is God going to reveal himself? How is God going to use this? And the same is true for us. Our flesh wants to know, who can I blame for what's happening to me? Whose fault is it? Is it me? Is it my sin? Is it my stupidity? Am I just that slow a learner? Is it the people around me, people who hate me, people who don't care about me? Is it God? I always thought deep down he didn't really love me. Who do I blame? No, it's the wrong question God gently answers. The right question is, how am I going to reveal myself? How am I going to manifest my grace, my goodness, my light, my life to the people watching you right now? How am I going to use you to show them that my love is real because you have the opportunity to show it to them even in difficult, especially in difficult times. We can't fully know how God is going to use a given situation. Solomon says so. Ecclesiastes 8.17 I saw all the work of the Lord, wrote Solomon, that a man cannot find out the work that's done under the sun. For though a man labors to discover it, yet he will not find it. Moreover, though a wise man attempts to know it, he will not be able to find it. 
The wisest man who ever lived just told us we can't know for sure the meaning, the purpose, God's plan in everything that happens. And probably we shouldn't try. What we can do is believe what God said. Philippians 1.6, He who began a good work in us will be faithful to complete it unto the day of Christ Jesus. God finishes what he started. And he'll use everything, pain included, to accomplish it. He won't waste anything, pain especially, along the way. But believing that's a decision, right? And again, it's a decision that we don't make just once, but thousands upon thousands of times along the way, tens of thousands of times. To believe that God is good in spite of what's happening around us, in spite of what's happening to us. To trust, to cling to him, and not our own understanding, not our own uh, interpretation of the circumstances. It's a decision. It's a decision to declare that God is still good and still just and still loving and still merciful, even in the storm. I'm going to ask Grayson to come back up. And the question I'm going to leave us with, is that our decision this morning? I began our time together observing a lot of us are going through a lot of stuff right now. For some, it's new stuff, brand new adversity we never have dealt with before we didn't see coming. It's a whole new season. For some of us, it's the same horrible, never-ending thing that's been going on for, seems like, forever. And for, another, for some of us, it's, an, it's another thing. On the heels of another thing, on the heels of another thing. And there was another thing before that. But whatever our thing, or things... Every one of us has a decision right now. What do I want to do with them? What am I willing to let God do with them? Because we'll most likely have another decision to make tomorrow, and the day after that, and the day after that, and the day after that. I'm not asking about all of the tomorrows. I'm asking about right now. Are we willing to believe that God is still good? Are we willing to trust that God has a plan? Are we willing to let him use pain to accomplish his plan? Are we willing to let his trials, the trials that he allows us, work out our growth and his glory? Are we willing to let him show himself faithful? Grayson's bringing in a new song, and it's a different sort of a song than sometimes we park in this part of the service. And I've asked her to to put it here, to sing it here for a reason. It's a declaration. It's a proclamation of who God is. It's an opportunity to declare to God, I believe what you tell me about yourself. Pay attention to your spirit during this song. Is your spirit leaping in amen? Is it resisting 
in doubt. Doubt's okay. But what are we choosing this morning? 